Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast, where you will get tips to expand your legal nurse consulting skills. Every week, you'll hear from experts from within and outside of legal nurse consulting. They will share their knowledge to help you grow. Your show is moderated by Pat Iyer, a legal nurse consultant with 30 years experience. So join our community, sit back, relax, and get ready to learn. Here's Pat. Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast. Today we're going to focus on some of the sources, causes, and statistics about medical errors. Factors that we consider as expert witnesses and as legal nurse consultants when we are evaluating cases. I have with me Dr. Patel, who is the Chief Medical Officer of Proactive MD. This is a unique healthcare model that is present in health centers across the country. And he is well known for focusing on ways that we can better engage clinicians and patients to work towards a culture of zero tolerance for gaps in healthcare by extending care beyond the walls to allow for a global improvement of healthcare. We've all heard the numbers. We all know that medical errors are a significant cause of mortality and morbidity in the United States as well as in healthcare systems around the world. And we wanted to focus today on some of those causes. Let's first focus on, is there any estimation of how many deaths are due to negligence in hospital admissions in this country, in the United States? Yes, Pat, there's data all across, and I guess um, different reports have different numbers, but at the end of the day, it's significant. Um, you know. The most recent data was from 2016 publication, the U.S. Patient Care Study, and it was endorsed by John Hopkins, where they explore death rates for hospitalizations over an eight-year period. It was 35 million hospitalizations, and they estimated nearly 10% of the deaths stemmed from a medical error. So the data is there. This is 2016, almost eight years ago. But historically, if we look at one of the first reports that came out uh, in 1999, uh, IOM, Institute of Medicine, published uh, data that said the third leading cause of death in the United States happens to be medical error. We haven't really made significant stride in improving these numbers over the years, knowing what we know. And I remember when that report came out, I was in a quality assurance, risk management type of role. The study coming from uh, New York admissions, which did not include nursing homes, did not include uh, outpatient care. And that led to the statistic of 44,000 to 98,000 people a year affected by medical errors, which gave people... I think a false sense of security, even those, those numbers were shocking compared to, you know, of crashing of jumbo jets, but it wasn't near the number that exists at that time. And now what you're saying is 
We're still grappling with numbers, if I understand what you said, but still don't know what exactly we're dealing with in terms of numbers. Part of it, of course, is reporting, and we have improved our culture over the decades uh, to self-report, open communication between uh, near misses or gaps in care or medication errors, so forth. But we still haven't reached that spot of comfort zone uh, within our system to be so open about it. You know, if you look at other industries, um, every time there's an issue, concern, error, delay in quality of any manufacturing plan, immediately there's action is taken. And unfortunately, we are lagging behind in this mindset overall. Why do you think it is that the mindset is so geared towards not reporting? No, I'm convinced that the gaps in healthcare or the systemic gaps in healthcare, um, we continued over the decades to be stagnant because it's a complex problem, right? Complexity kills all progress. So unless we break these problems with the big gorilla in the room and break it into pieces, we're not going to be able to digest that piece that belongs to you and I. And sometimes we feel like this is a big problem. This is something I can't tackle. So individually, we really put no effort into it because we feel like the system will improve on its own. But it's not. It's it's really we as healthcare uh, providers need to realize that in the leadership of our system to develop a ecosystem that says every member of the healthcare professional has a key role, starting from the custodian to the cafeteria worker to the nurse to the doctor, the surgeon. Everyone has a key role to play for the safety of that patient in the hospital or in your health system. And if we can break these down and when we break this down, I feel we can tackle these small bite-sized uh, to-do lists. It's, I mean, if you think about it, if you had a list of things to do and you had 50 items on your list, you're probably going to read the 50 items three times and never get anything done because it's just too much to do. So we have to somehow make it into small compartments or silos and then attack each one of these silos. It Again, certain healthcare providers will be able to work on a certain issue and some will not and others can work on the other issues. And that's really the mindset that we have to create, I feel, in our day-to-day colleagues or, you know, a lot of us are in specialty care, smaller systems, larger systems or independent practice, whatever that may be. But it really has to be looked at in that closed group rather than looking at it as a global national crisis. That makes a lot of sense. And one of the concerns that I have always had is what we do to people who do report errors. I was a nursing quality assurance coordinator in 1987, quite a few years ago. I remember sitting in a pharmacy and therapeutics committee and the physician chair was going over the six incident reports involving medication errors that occurred in the previous month in a 600-bed hospital. And he said to the director of nursing, we've got to get this number down to zero. And I said to him, you're not getting accurate reporting based on the number of beds 
what happens to the nurses who report errors. Oh, if they report errors, then we fire them. Well, that's why you've got six incident reports for that month. He got angry with me later after I left that position and stayed in touch with a woman who had hired me. She explained that they had taken a hard look at the implications of firing people. If they reported three incidents, they were out the door and they were taking steps to try to change that perspective. Do you think that that still is happening today? That people are being fired when they report incidents? I think the answer is yes, but the frequency, hopefully it's a lot less than it was 10, 20 years ago, but we still fear to identify our our own mistakes in a group setting. We fear what will our colleagues say, what will our, uh, you know, leadership say, what will our boss feel and say, and what will our patients say. I think that the fear of that sub-quality par delivery of care, I, I feel that's where that stigma still exists. And that is really why um, we're not openly reporting uh, con- issues or concerns of possible um, modification in the process of procedures or uh, techniques or whatever that may be in that particular situation. But I am very convinced that it still happens to a different level. And um, because if you reported three errors, and your colleagues reported none, and you are going to be hired at an institution, who's the first pick? You know? So I think that that kind of plays a role. And that's what we feel of maybe the underlying principle of what the HR department uh, is looking at uh, quality metrics. So under the Joint Commission standards for our overseas visitors, the Joint Commission is one of the regulatory bodies that provide a certification that a particular facility has met their standards. Under the Joint Commission regulations, when an error has occurred, the staff are supposed to inform the patient that that has taken place. And we know that a percentage of those patients will not be satisfied with an apology or an explanation or a promise of change in the system and we'll seek out a plaintiff attorney to evaluate their claim to see if they have a valid case. I have read and we've talked about the fact that that about 2% of these untoward outcomes lead to lawsuits. What's your perspective as to why that number is so low? I, you know, again, looking at just the number that gets into the litigation versus the actual number of errors. It's really um, the fear. I feel the, the fear of reporting uh, the, and knowing that um, the, as you said earlier, the, the almost 45 to 98,000 was reported in 1999, but today that number has jumped to almost 225, 250 because more people are reporting it, but yet there's a still a subset of number that's not being reported. And that is where I feel the discrepancy is, is that only nearly 2% of all errors actually get into the litigation desk. And then to go one step further, out of uh, 100 phone calls that a plaintiff attorney might get in a month, the attorney might take 
four or five of those cases and reject the rest because it's either too long ago or there's no family member who can act as a representative for the patient. The next door neighbor doesn't have a relationship. Or it's an invalid case because there's no damages or it's difficult to prove causation. So we end up with a very small number of cases that are filed out of that 100 inquiries, which are only 2% of what's going on. We're really dealing with an infinitesimal number of suits compared to the errors that occur. And also another factor is some of those errors didn't actually injure the patient. So they might have been a break in technique or an error, but nothing happened as a result. To add, uh, I feel like there's three major areas that uh, if we were to make an impact uh, in the shortest amount of time is first as a group, as an institution, as a uh, uh, your colleagues in the workspace that you're in, is to acknowledge that the flawed system is more of the reason why we create errors rather than the individual healthcare personnel. You and I know this, most of us understand this, but does the leadership in your hospital recognize that it's assembly errors that are causing majority of the gaps in care and safety culture and not the individuals? The Once we understand this, acknowledge this, I feel the second phase is to create that ecosystem of safety, not just uh, between the um, staff members or the providing care, nurses, doctors, so forth, but even with the board members of the hospital. If you look at the uh, agenda of a um, board meeting of a hospital 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, and today, it's shifted. And some of the top agenda items today, we talk about safety. And that is, again, changing the culture of top-down in the, even the board members are now looking at the agendas and the opening topic is about quality metrics, about how we can do better. And then the finance and then the, the items that uh, are of concern. Look at the agenda 30 years ago. It's shifted. It's totally opposite. The quality is never discussed or even if it is, it's the last of the item list and it, we never get to it and the meeting is adjourned. So uh, we've made some strides, I, but I still feel um, as an institution, large size, small, medium, whatever that may be, that right from the top, the leadership down is where the um, safety culture needs to originate. And then the third piece is really developing a systemic approach every time a minor error occurs. Usually what happens, unless a big event, we don't dissect it. We don't look at the breakdown of what really happened. We don't do a root cause analysis unless there's a significant error, because it takes time to do a root cause analysis. And what if we developed a system that works easily approachable? And so then you can take the smallest error and work it through the system and improve the process because you're able to process diet, you know, go through that systemic approach because you've developed a system that works for your institution. So again, acknowledge, 
the system errors are more than human errors. An ecosystem of safety starting from the top down from the board members and a systemic approach to diagnosing the root cause analysis. That's a wonderful model. And, and certainly when we think about the complexity in healthcare and the multiple opportunities for errors, having a way of pulling apart the system and looking at where are the failures that may be repeated unless we take a look at that failure and figure out how do we work around that? How do we eliminate that as a source of confusion? I'm thinking about the manufacturers of pharmaceuticals who have the tall man letters or using all caps in part of a name of a drug on the label to help the viewer distinguish between that medication and another one that is similar in its wording. You know, that's a part of looking at the system. I know that as you've done this work in the safety area, you've identified eight causes of what we would consider to be medical errors in the healthcare system. Can you take us through those and, and then talk about how we would apply this framework as we are reviewing cases as experts and legal nurse consultants? Before we continue with the show, I'd like to share this special announcement with you. Have you considered exploring other avenues in nursing? Would you like to become a legal nurse consultant or expand your legal nursing practice? I have the perfect virtual conference for you. The eighth virtual LNC Success Conference, October 26, 27, and 28, 2023. I'm Barbara Levin, past president of the American Association of Legal Nurse Consultants, and together with another past president, Patricia Iyer, we have been working together to take the pulse of legal nursing and bringing in national speakers and exciting topics. Our conference topics include clinical, legal, and legal nursing, as well as business and much more. Today, I'm here to speak with Ruth Pierce, and she's been a nurse for over 37 years. Her experience includes emergency room, flight team, paramedic, CCU, CVICU, and organ transplants. Currently, she works as a cardiac reviewer for a national accreditation company. She visits and certifies hospitals across the country, and that has given her the unique ability to understand the current cardiac standards and trends in patient care. Ruth is also the past president of her local American Association of Critical Care Nurses chapter and the North Carolina Association for Healthcare Quality. Welcome, Ruth. Can you share with our audience some of the topics that you are going to present in your program? Hi, hi Barbara, thank you. Yes, during my topic, we're gonna to be focusing on cardiac and the cardiac standards of care. So if you as a legal nurse consultant are asked to review a case, how do you know what the standard of care is at that time period? Because the case might've been a couple of years ago. 
So how can you research and find and know that you're giving current information to your attorney? So I'm going to talk about where can you find clinical practice guidelines? Where can you find uh, the current ones as well as past guidelines? And then what are clinical practice guidelines? There's a lot of different terminology uh, regarding these guidelines. Um, Also, where would you find them? And then what have been some key updates? There have been some major updates uh, during the pandemic from about 2020 to 2023. There have been some major changes in the guidelines, primarily to heart failure management, as well as management of um, emergency room department patients who arrive with chest pain. So there's some changes in the verbiage. There's changes in medications. Uh, So there's a lot happening. So it's a lot for people to understand and to comprehend. And so this is what I'm gonna discuss in our topic in the next couple of months is about what can we do as a clinical, as a uh, legal nurse consultant, where can you go find the information and know that you have the current information for that time period. This is so important for legal for legal nurses, for sure. Because if you have a case that was in, let's say 2014, some of the standards may have changed And here we are at 2023. That's very true. So you want to make sure that if you're reviewing a case for your attorney, that you are giving him the current information and the guidelines, the standards from that time period for when the case was, um, in fact, taking place. Important information to be shared. I look forward to hearing more about what you have to share with all of us. Do you want to take next steps with your legal nurse practice? Well, we invite you to attend our LNC Success Conference. It's our eighth virtual conference, October 26, 27, 28, 2023, for an exciting knowledge-packed conference. You will have lots of fun. All it takes is the click of a button. Please see the link below, lnc.tips forward slash October 2023 virtual. We look forward to seeing you. Now let's return to the show. Sure. You know, um, I, we can, I can make a whole host, a list of these concerns, but putting into buckets of categories will, I feel, help uh, you create a blueprint or uh, a, um, uh, a template. And the eight distinct buckets that I feel that I've sort of crafted over time is... Uh, some of them are very intuitive, but putting them into buckets then allows us to dissect the uh, you know, event or near miss. Well, communication being the most common, inadequate information flow within the hospital system, patient-related issues, patient education, patient training, um, and then staffing patterns. You know, staffing patterns alone doesn't cause errors, but staffing patterns helps create a bad environment, which can lead to errors because of not enough for personnel. And next is inadequate policies, um, whether it's organizational, uh, culture of employees, during orientation, sometimes the locums, PRN, the organizational structure is not really explained to the PRN and locums well. And several technical errors and 
last would be really the knowledge-based or two areas you would So those are eight buckets. And we can, again, go into individual buckets and describe details. But the key thing is to create a grid or a template or something that works that you can literally go through each one of these checklists and um, walk through and say, was this an issue in my uh, event? Yes or no? And if not, cross it out and just keep processing through that checklist. And very quickly, we realize that you can go through a review of a case very quickly because you've sort of broken the big complex problem. And I can see that some of that information would be very helpful in talking to the attorney client who has hired the expert and is in the process then of figuring out what policies and procedures do I need to request during discovery? What questions do I need to ask in deposition of the defendants about some of those factors that may not show up in the medical record and yet were in the background? influencing the care. You know, like an inexperienced staff member, you wouldn't know until you get into depositions that the person taking care of the patient was a new graduate. Or in one case, one of my colleagues presented at one of our online conferences, it was the first day and the first shift of that nurse at the time that she was assigned to take care of the patient. And she had no experience whatsoever with this issue, and it was unfortunately, she was part of the chain of events that ended up in a bad outcome. And, and Pat, in a situation like that, um, that particular nurse that came to work for the first time in that environment, is it really that nurse's, I guess, we are all to blame, but where should we? Um, make the biggest impact is having a organized structure orientation, organized structure that says whenever you're the first month in at work, you'll have this person to contact, this person to over look at your decisions or some format, some system. And that's the responsibility of the organization, of the system to provide that and not necessarily the individual nurse to be, I hope someone's going to help me today. And then you have created a fear of uh, not wanting to ask any questions because you're in that environment saying you're out, this is you, your first day, doesn't matter, you're going to be a shortage of help and you're going to make a difference. And quickly you put in, put people into the wrong environment. Yes, you're absolutely right. And as you're pointing out, there's a lot of system interactions that go into this. I think it's James Reason who talks about that chain of events, the Swiss cheese model, that all the lines and all the holes in the cheese line up to allow for a series of events to occur that ultimately result in a bad outcome. If anyone along the way had raised their hand and said, oh, wait a minute, this doesn't look right, or I think there's a problem here, or are you aware that this is happening? Any questioning person could potentially stop the sequence of events. But unfortunately, it happens all too often that it, the, the event 
gets a momentum of its own and culminates in a terrible impact on the patient. Um, so I, I agree, Pat. I think the key thing is the, as you said, there's a safety net and the, we can create these safety nets, um, by patient identification, timeout, all of those variables. And unless we actually exercise them in a very didactic methodology, um, when all of those three or four or five filters fail, um, you'll end up having a bad outcome. And I think um, the fact that we can or cannot raise our hand if they identify an error or a possible um, shift in uh, procedure or maybe some equipment flawed or some, uh, unless we can raise our hand as a group, it's just not, not going to have change. I mean, I think the biggest problem we have is that fear of reporting. And, you know, we always say it takes uh, 17 years to make a change in a culture, right? I mean, if you think about how we, we uh, where we were growing up, we never wore seatbelts. And um, now the new uh, generation wears a seatbelt before they start the key, uh, put the key in the ignition. So I feel like it, it, we, we just don't have that leisurely time um, to say we can take another 10 years to get this right. I feel like we have taken the last 20, 30 years knowing what we know, still not making a significant impact. Um, we're, our greatest enemy right now is time. We have the raw data. We have the information. We're very, very uh, scientifically oriented individuals in healthcare. But yet, I feel like the simplest um, things are failing us. And the, the 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 root cause is the simple things. It's nothing complex, but it's a big problem. We just need to break it down into pieces. Yes, it is, and I think that's one of the. The recurring and refreshing themes of what we've been talking about today is, yes, it's an enormous problem. Um, it's like I say to my husband when he's overwhelmed with the fact that his room, his office is messy. And I say, just start somewhere. Start in one corner. Start with one surface and clean that up and then move to the next. We have so many opportunities in healthcare to improve and we've got to do it systematically, piece by piece, as you've talked about, with encouragement from the administration of the healthcare systems to say this is something we are committed to and we'll put resources behind. We'll give you the time, the personnel, the equipment, the support and encouragement that you need to make healthcare safer. You know, another, uh, to echo what you are saying, uh, Pat, we all have uh, attended or been involved in a code uh, when a patient is crashing on the floor, overhead message goes out, and a team of people arrive at the door of the patient. What are we really achieving? We're assembling a team. We're assembling equipment medications, and policies, procedures. So these are the things that are at the bedside when we call a code. Um, knowingly or not willing, these are the sort of the anatomy of the code. And that keeps the quality 
up to spec. We are following a protocol in ACLS algorithm. We have a team that arrives, not any team, but a team that's designed to run the code where we ensure the medications are there, not the entire pharmacy, but the crucial medications that are needed for the code at the bedside. So these are things that we subconsciously or we have so programmed ourselves to do, and we expect that this is the norm, which is, it should be the norm. But what happens when we break this down and say, who's responsible for what? The knowledge content that you and I take to the bedside is our knowledge. But the rest of the if, uh, items that we had just talked about is really a system issue. Having the right medication cart, system issue. Having the right medications loaded in the cart, system issue. Having the right protocol on the cart, system issue. Having equipment that works, system issue. So when you break these things down, now let's say there's an error or gaps in care or we, um, the patient did not get the standard of care during that code. It's easy to say it's the nurse and the doctor's fault or the technician's fault or the respiratory tech. But what about the other factors that play? We sometimes just ignore that or don't come out of it because there's no voice. But that is 80% of that code is the rest of the stuff, which is a systemic issue, not you and I issue. Yeah, that's a great example because so many things have to line up and go well in order to resuscitate a patient in that situation. When I was in staff development for several years, I read an article in a nursing journal about a common issue that when you call a code on a med surge unit and you've got the crash cart in the room, people running to the code don't know what room to go to. And this article recommended taking a magnetic disc and a wooden pole and attaching a bright orange piece of plastic to create a flag and sticking that pole on the doorway because there's metallic doorways leading to the patient's room. Stick it on the doorway and anyone running down the hall could go right to that room. Simple. 29 cent piece that the people in the maintenance department created for us and put on every code cart. That was just one little piece where you think about all the things that have to line up. The first is, where are they going? What room? Where is this thing happening? So as we close off, what type of advice might you offer a legal nurse consultant who's looking at a case and, and thinking about all of the causes that they should be evaluating as they analyze the medical records? I know that's a broad question, probably totally unfair because there's no simple answer to that. But what's that one piece of advice that you would keep in mind for the legal nurse consultant? Sure. When we are asked to review a case, we sometimes get two or 3,000 pages. Um, we, we, it's too big of a task. Again, going back to saying it's so complex. Um, so that I feel like the first thing we should focus on is um, creating a 50,000 foot chronology, reviewing that with the council to better understand where uh, we need to first focus, uh, which area we need to focus, then zoom in with a second review of chronology, doing a 30,000 view, review again, and then, then hone in on that one hour of concern that you may have that care might have lapsed. So then you can do further 
chronology, detailed chronology for that one hour. So this will, one, save time, two, laser focus where the problem is. And then using the same chronology, I feel using those eight specific category, the buckets of errors, we can take these and flag certain areas of that timeline, the chronology, and say, possibly this pulse ox should have been done earlier, or this blood pressure should have been done every five minutes, or whatever that may be that you feel is a concern. So when you start flagging these areas, instead of just flagging it, we should probably flag it with the right bucket, with the right category. So that'll then hold on and say, is this systemic error, right? If the, the um, medications that was given to the patient, uh, they didn't have calcium gluconate, so they gave calcium party. Is that okay? If not, why was it not there? Why did the pharmacy not have it in there? Was it not in their checklist? So I think that would be a systemic issue. So kind of looking at that same chronology over and over and over again, honing in, honing in, honing in, and then putting in where you feel possible gaps are using some basic categories will allow very healthy conversation and really establish more of the standard of care, med, not med, below, or you know, I, I think it, this will put a system to, you know, so I, I call it the anatomy of systemic gaps in care. So that's what I call my Excel, right? I mean, and, and every, everyone's got a blueprint of some sort, whether it's an Excel or doc file, checklist, whatever that may be, it's got to work for you, right? Uh, but at the end, all of it kind of has to hone in on that one document that is your master cheat sheet that uh, has all the data points that you need. I love that suggestion for a systematic way of looking at the medical record and the issues using a systems approach and thinking about the potential causes that contributed to that outcome. That makes so much sense. Thank you. What would be the best way for our viewer or listener to be able to contact you if they would like to find out more about the services that you offer? Um, I have a website. It's my name, Kayur V Patel dot MD. And I'm very easily approachable. My cell number is on there. Uh, my email, uh, they can read, anyone can reach out. I'll, I'm more than happy to share any of my uh, templates I've been using for some time. It works for me, won't work for everyone, but at least that's a starting point for some. I'll be more than happy to share. Thank you so much. And thank you for being a guest on Legal Nurse Podcast. Pleasure. We've just scratched the surface, didn't we, on this topic? We, we could go on for hours and hours. There's so much that you know about this area that would be useful to our viewers. So I, I hope people will take you up on checking out your website and looking at the resources that are available there. And thank you to you who's been watching this program, getting a sense of some of the very complicated causes that lead to medical errors. I encourage you to keep learning about this, going deeper into analyzing how errors occur and using that knowledge as you're evaluating cases as expert witnesses or legal nurse consultants. I share my podcast on Expert Edu, which is my app available on for iPhone and for Android by going to the Apple App Store or Google Play for Android. 
You can get tips about legal nurse consulting and also about improving your writing skills on that app. And you can download Expert Edu from Google or from Apple App Stores. Be sure to come back next week for a new show, new topic. And coming up next, you'll find out as soon as I finish talking, you'll get a chance to see who our next guest is and get a taste for what we're going to be covering in our next podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you, Pat. Coming up next on Legal Nurse Podcast, you'll have an opportunity to meet Angela Barker as we go into the area of pediatric home care and what are some of the liability risks of that environment. Angela, tell our listener and our viewer, what were some of the key topics that we covered in your show? Sure. So we covered just what short-term and long-term patients, what type of care or what type of diagnoses they have, are they qualifying for home care? Also, who takes care of the patient in the home health aides, LVNs, RNs? What are the benefits of hiring an agency versus consumer-directed care? Uh, some of the restrictions for the home health aid, as well as uh, liability risks uh, for taking care of a pediatric patient in the home. What training and orientation uh, goes into uh, preparing these staffs to t the the staff to be able to care for those patients, as well as um, helping an attorney identify the documentation uh, that should be requested when reviewing one of these cases. This is a specialized area of nursing and a complex area in terms of liability. You'll want to be sure to watch Angela's show to get a sense of some of the risks and the responsibilities of a nurse or an aide or an LVN taking care of a patient in home. This is Pat Iyer with Legal Nurse Podcast, and coming up next, you'll meet Angela Barker as we focus on pediatric home care and some of the risks associated with it. Stay tuned. Thanks so much. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for legal nurse consultants on LegalNurseBusiness.com. Pat coaches legal nurse consultants so they make more money, get more clients, and avoid expensive mistakes. Check out her coaching program at LNCAcademy.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Join our community to get notified of each new episode and to receive the transcript of today's program. Complete the request form on podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. We appreciate you and your interest.